At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Hello, welcome to Growing Greener. I'm Ara Anderson, and this is my podcast series for Gardener's World magazine, where I'm inviting experts to share their knowledge about how we can all become sustainable gardeners. Through a blend of science-based facts, research, experience, and above all passion, you'll discover how your actions in the garden will make a real difference to the planet. With fluctuating weather and growing populations, our towns and cities are on the front line of rising temperatures, flash floods and degraded air quality. So just how can some of our common garden plants help? My guest in this episode is Dr. Tiana Blanuza, RHS environmental scientist and specialist in plant physiology. Her extensive research into the benefits of greening our cities reveals how the natural functions of plants could give us vital protection against the future of a changing climate. Hi, Tiana. Welcome to Growing Greener. Hi, Ari. Thank you for having me. Uh, You are more than welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, Before we get um, onto plants, I would just like to hear from you why you're so passionate about greening up our cities, our urban and suburban areas? main reason I am really passionate is because most of us live in cities. And I know from the evidence from my own work and the work of many colleagues in this research field that even small steps uh, that we make in our own green spaces can make a big difference to us on so many levels um, in in terms of psychological, but also environmental well-being. So uh, I'm really keen for us to be doing what we can, especially uh, in you know a society that's as green as, as British, where you know people really have this passion for their own green spaces. So um, yes, that's what drives me. I think. Oh, good, exactly. And we are a nation of gardens, is what they say. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. Very much so. But, I mean, the thing is, is, you know, as you just mentioned there, you know, so many of us um, are going to be, if we're not already, we're going to be living in some sort of urban um, or suburban area. And certainly, you know, there are numbers out there that say that, you know, almost 90% of the UK residents live in urban areas already. I mean, what sort of issues can that throw up? Well, it it won't come as a surprise to you or or your listeners, I suppose, that the main issues are to do with air quality, uh, but also increasingly uh, rising temperatures in urban areas, which tend to be higher because of all these uh, sealed um, impervious surfaces that absorb more energy than the surrounding rural areas. Uh, And then also because of all these sealed surfaces and the fact that we are paving over more and more of our land, it's issues with localised flooding, um, also issues with noise, potential loss of biodiversity. I mean, I I don't want to really sound as a doomsayer because the link of of, um, 
potential pro problems are many, but there are also things we can do um, to mitigate them for want of uh, a, a more user-friendly word. Um, so, so yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, though, it is it is important. I mean, it does always sound a bit gloomy when we say some of these things, but I think it is important for us to understand the issues so that when we're working on the solutions and the mitigation, as you say, we understand why we're doing certain things and, and if we have to change certain practices. So, yeah, I, I think we always want to get the, the issues on the table first. And, and like you say, you know, just air quality alone is is big enough reason for that us gardeners can do something to contribute yeah that's very true although i would have to sort of be you know act as a, as a proper scientist here and say that in terms of the hierarchy of where the greenery can help air quality is probably not the biggest one the biggest you know help comes from reduction of emissions and you know smaller use of vehicles or change to more sustainable energy sources but plants can also help in that domain but in terms of where plants can really help is um, sort of cooling um, regulation of temperatures regulation of water flows and hydrology uh, biodiversity and then you know it all really adds up you know you gain something in, in you know, two or three domains and then perhaps slightly less in other domains. And it's that composite benefit that you have from those multiple services that you're getting from the same set of planting that I feel is really important. Yeah. I mean, I think what I love about the fact is that you are a scientist and you're cut straight in there, which is brilliant because that's why we've got you on the podcast so that we can really understand the science behind what we're doing. I mean, you know, obviously a lot of us gardeners are drawn to plants for their fabulous flowers and their fruit. But, you know, you look at, you study the function of plants, you know, the actual functionality of how they can help us live in our cities and towns. So, I mean, you've touched on some of these things. I mean, let's break them down one by one um, in terms of some of these functions. Air temperature, for example, how do plants help us with air temperature? Um, so the four key mechanisms whereby plants cool are through um, evapotranspiration. So that's water loss through plant stomata, through plant leaves. Um, that actually and the, this change of, of state of water from liquid in a plant to gas when it leaves the plant uh, consumes a lot of energy and that uh, sort of cools the surrounding air um, so that's the main principle where they whereby plant cool they also cool because they shade uh, they also reflect some of the energy and then photosynthesis is also just a very small kind of uh, source of, of how energy is being spent. But in the temperate climate, and that's British climate, um, uh, water loss through, trans through transpiration, it's a, it's a mouthful, I do apologize, <laughs> but this, this okay. kind of uh, water loss through plants uh, is the biggest source of cooling. And that's a huge advantage that plants have above the, the, the advantage that other surfaces have. So if you have a parasol, yes, of course, you are shaded. Or if you have a white surface, it then reflects energy. So you have higher albedo, that's better cooling. But what those artificial uh, forms of, of, of shading don't have is this transpirational water loss. So that's the summertime cooling. But then you also have the benefits, for example, of winter insulation or channeling the winds or cutting out the, the, the winds. And there are really sizable, even in new built houses where you have very good insulation methods anyway, that there are really measurable um, energy savings that you can achieve 
through strategic positioning of planting around the building uh, in winter time, uh, and then also the way things are changing in terms of saving energy for um, summertime air, air conditioning. If you have a, a tree which is or you know a, a line of trees strategically placed around your house or a hedgerow that's shading a particular side or a green wall you know, a green facade is growing up your south-facing wall, for example, or things mm-hmm. like that. Wow. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? That, you know, often people, you know, when we're sort of talking temperature, not just air temperature, but temperature in, in general, of course we want to save energy. We're seeing energy bills going up. But if I think about it, there's a lot of times when if I, you know, might go to a garden, a client's got a lot of ivy growing up a wall, and they kind of say they want to take that down. I mean, you know, I can I can sense I can sense you're going to talk to me about that, Tiana. Come on. Yes, no, I'm grateful for you not cutting that ivy down, Ari, <laughs> or at least advocating on behalf. Uh, I mean, th- there is also a lot of nuances to which plants we choose for which exposition of the house. So, for example, on a south-facing wall, you may want to go for something that's deciduous, so you prevent solar gain in the summer, but you leave it exposed for winter solar gain. You know, there are little tricks like that, which you could, you know, as a designer, you can employ or and then obviously go with what clients would visually prefer. Um, But, for example, on north facing walls, something like ivy, so an evergreen year round cover uh, would give you this kind of cushioning insulation in winter as well. You know, so to try and sort of um, increase the temperature uh, by creating this sort of cavity um, space between the, the planting and the building and therefore warming the, the rooms inside, but also, uh, you know, cooling in, in the summer. So, I mean, there's a lot to be said about, you know, the benefits of some really simple and cheap forms. I mean, how much does it cost to buy a few um climbers and stick them around the wall if the wall is sound enough and most walls can be made to be sound enough to take even ivy that's much maligned and you know has a lot of bad press you know which you know we could do a whole podcast just on ivy and the kind of misconceptions (laughs) around ivy but i think that's you know i think this is the thing that we're trying to help people to sort of see that there are functional benefits to plants it's not just this visual impact i mean obviously as you say ivy being one of the plants that gets bad press bees love it as one it's just one thing but you know so i think that the um so going back to sort of the how these plants can help us in the cities um temperature you've really explained that well it's this transpiration that is incredibly important so um the other city issue um that you touched upon before pollution um how do how do plants how do they sort of how do they actually trap that pollution how does it work so it it depends on what's the the source of pollution and whether you're talking about particles which in news nowadays you'll hear you know mentions of pm particulate matter and they will say you know pm 10 is a problem or pm 2.5 those are smaller particles they're even more of a problem because they penetrate deeper so it's whether you talk about particles or whether you talk about gases you have uh, you know carbon monoxide nitrogen dioxide in cities particularly is an issue uh and then the mechanisms depend depending on what is the compound you're talking about. But for particles, which are currently the main topic, I think, po- policy-wise, the plants act quite sort of simply and passively. They literally act as deposition surfaces. 
Um, so in that sense, they could do similar things to you that a fence would do, but the point of difference, so, you know, a fence would be a screen, which, which would sort of reduce some concentration of the pollutants which are traveling towards you. But what plants do better, I would argue, than a fence is the fact that they can be, if they're well looked after and, you know, carefully chosen to have really dense canopies and are, you know, reasonably vigorous, they have generally larger area onto which uh, particles can be deposited and therefore act literally as a filter through which that air is dragging and the air you get on the other side of that filter, you know, it depends on the compound. It's, you know, 5 to 20% less polluted than what you have in front. And even those, you know, you could argue, oh, well, but that's not all, you know, it's not, you know, all clean. But I would argue that even a small reduction is better than no reduction. And equally in parallel, you know, we have to be asking for, uh, you know, mitigations to be put in other places so that, you know, our uh, fuels are, are, you know, less problematic, that we use energy sources that are cleaner and then plants can play a small part of that solution. And as I said, all the other things, you know, so a hedgerow that you've installed as a barrier would be at the same time a noise barrier, would be a home for certain wildlife, might, you know, perhaps even shade or insulate bits of your house. You know, so it's this multiplicity of benefit, again, that, that would be important. But yes, in terms of the particles, it's the deposition. And in terms of the gases, it's just the uptake through stomata. So plants would take up those gases and metabolize some of them so that it reduces the concentration in the surrounding area. Um, But a lot would depend on the scale. So obviously, if you put in, uh, you know, you know, a meter of a hedge, which is badly looked after and, uh, you know, feels sorry for itself, it's hardly going to do anything. So you, you know, the the more you have, the more you have, the bigger impact it will it will have. Yeah. No. I mean, I think the hedges. I'm going to come back to that in a bit more detail because I know that you've done quite a lot of work on hedges, and I really want to kind of explore that because that's an important one for so many people. But we'll come back to hedges. I'm just capturing this big, um, sort of bigger bigger vision, if you like, about how plants um, help us. We've talked about air temperature. We've talked about the pollution. Now, flooding um, and these heavy um, rainfall events that we we are seeing more and more of, you know, they are becoming more extreme. They're becoming more intense when they come down. Um, And, you know, plants can play a role in that, can't they, within our spaces? Very much so. And again, it's even more important in urban areas because we are losing um, areas where soil is just freely uh, kind of accessible to rainfall. I mean, the biggest storage for rainfall is in the soil and the plants in that sense are kind of more like an icing on a cake that keeps the soil there. Uh, But us losing the soil through paving and through use of impermeable paving really limits the opportunities for rain to go anywhere than to the drainage system, which really cannot cope in situations where you have these intense rainfalls. And then the role of plants is really twofold. Uh, One is to relatively smaller part of their role, but it's it's to store some of the incoming rainfall in the canopy. And that's, again, where large canopies that are uh, quite dense and and well-developed will store a sizable amount. I mean, I've done experiments um, with hedges, again, as as you've hinted, uh, (laughs) where even when I had an experiment where I kept my soil fully saturated, so literally like any 
additional droplet I would put in, it would start leaking from the soil. And then I would rain on my model hedge. So, you know, they, they were not, uh, they were just sort of experimental setup. And it would give me, uh, in some cases, even 15 minutes kind of delay of any runoff coming from the bottom of my, you know, big tubs because of the rain that's being held in the canopy. So even when I know the soil can't take anything, I know that the canopy can, you know, so, and that has a, you know, it, again, it say, sounds like, oh, it's nothing. But when you have a drainage system on your street that's overflowing and struggling to keep, and, you know, maybe the rain will stop in 15 minutes in a kind of intense summer storm, those 15 minutes that you bought is possibly what's protecting your front porch from being flooded or not. I'm, you know, I'm not saying, it, you know, if it's a once in 500 year kind of cataclysmic event, no amount of hedging will will save you, but in a kind of regular day to day or kind of kinds of events that we see on a regular basis, it's, it's the case of every little helps. Um, so that canopy storage is important. And I think that you know, I mean, I I um, was recalling a, a, a story when I was at Hampton Court, massive flood, uh, a deluge of rain. I mean, it was biblical. Um, but we we were caught under trees. I mean, yeah, that is the classic one. It wasn't a, a thunderstorm; it was a rain. It was a rainstorm, and you know, comparatively, we were not wet. You know, so the canopy. I think even even obviously we we don't have the um, the science data that you have. I think anybody, if you stand under a tree, you know that that's going to help with um uh, with with rain penetration, isn't it? And like, like you said, it's all about this rain not hitting the ground, which certainly will be paved over it, not hitting the ground straight away, slowing that flow down. And alleviating the pressure on the local drainage systems. And, you know, I've done some, some work, actually quite a bit of work on hedges myself. I have a new colleague, um, new postdoc at, at the Royal Horticulture Society who works on garden trees and also looking at their capacity to what, you know, she's looking at a number of things, but one of them is also how they store um, rainfall. Uh, and the idea is that we try and find the candidates that are suitable for domestic gardens, but we know provide an extra layer of capacity of, you know, being able to hold that little bit better or being able to do two or three things uh, really well so that when people are choosing for their, their gardens, they also can choose not well, in addition to what they really like and what's suitable for their garden and what they can afford, um, also choose the trees or, or, you know, bits of hedging or, you know, perennial planting that is also functional or functional that little bit more. That's the kind of thing that we are trying to do with quite a few of our projects currently. Which, which is so so useful. I mean, so let's let's talk about the hedges now because we, you know, I think that this is a good point to talk about it because. If we think about it from a, and I'm going to talk about it from a trend perspective, you know, I think back in the 70s, it would be very much so that you would see people out with their trimmers, with their shears, trimming the hedge, you know, a sun, Saturday, Sunday job. Um, that's what people did. There was a lot more hedges that were around. And then over time, and especially in the, in front gardens, if people are lucky enough to have a front garden. And then, of course, what's happened over time is that we've gone into this lowering maintenance. Low maintenance. Uh, don't get me started on that. But that has taken out a lot of hedges um, in um, people's gardens, whether, whether it's the back garden or the front garden. And and I think that this is, the, this is where the research that you've done um, has shown us just how much the hedge can assist in a garden. So 
you know, let 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 tell tell me more about that, Tiana. So, I mean, that research is still ongoing. It's, it's you know, new questions keep cropping up as they always do in <laughs> science. We're always like, oh, well, we need to know a bit more. Uh, but what we know so far and why we've chosen hedges is because even though, as you say, perhaps the coverage is decreasing somewhat compared to, you know, 20th element, you know, parts of 20th century, when we've done um, a, a poll in 2021 via some RHS sort of um, media activity, we found that more than 40% of people nationally in the UK, um, and not just RHS members, that was you know wider than RHS members, have, still have hedges in their garden. So when you think about it, you know, if you turn it and make it into a glass half full, it's it's kind of suggesting it's not all lost, I would say, that a lot of us still have hedges. A lot of new built houses do have, albeit a token hedge around the perimeter. Um, and I think uh, that that's encouraging. And then in terms of what hedges do, uh, they are really cheap and linear installation. They don't take up a lot of space. They are not expensive to uh, install compared to maybe some other forms of, of green infrastructure. Um, they, you know, through careful selection, you could maybe still have reasonably low maintenance. I mean, you can't get away from at least needing an annual trim, but I wouldn't suggest that you need to be out there, you know, every other month cutting things. And that's not good also for all sorts of other reasons for biodiversity purposes and, you know, this, you know, disturbing the habitat. Uh, and the kinds of things you could expect from hedge, and, you know, we've done quite a bit of research on this rainfall mitigation, canopy storage, but also transpirational cooling, you know, hedges, which are stronger pumps and therefore release the, you know, increase the soil water storage through pumping out. So we know that hedge can, hedges can do that well and provide localized kind of uh, stormwater relief. Um, again, they could be u- really used well to, influence microclimate, so to kind of screen you from prevailing winds. I mean, you don't need me to, you know, they would be our, I suppose, listeners in, in Scotland who would be like, well, you know, you're rediscovering the wheel here where people have used for, for decades those hedge screens to protect themselves from, from the winds they wanted to avoid. So that's definitely the case. Um, you know, biodiversity, you know, they're real networks and, 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 and sort of corridors for all sorts of, of wildlife in, in urban setting, you know, connecting you know, bits of greenery and can be really useful. Um, I mean, we are just starting a, a project um, with colleagues at the University of Salford looking at hedges as noise barriers and to what extent we can optimize the use of species and maybe in cultiv- hedge cultivars um, and use w- with maybe some artificial surfaces to kind of maximize the noise uh, reduction that you can get from hedges. Air quality, there's a lot of research to do with air quality showing that hedges can have a potential to be more efficient than actually trees in certain contexts. But again, it depends on the, on the design, on the depth, on, you know, sources of pollution. You know, there are some ifs and buts, but we know enough currently to be able to provide some initial recommendations so that people can get going. And really what appeals to me with hedges is that, again, they don't cost, cost much. I mean, I was just, I'm starting a new experiment just now, setting it up and, I bought some hawthorn and literally I bought loads because I need quite a a lot of replication. And it was, you know, in the tens of pounds because I went for bare root, uh, you know, three-year-old, four-foot-high, you know, young plants. So, you know, I don't think the pricing is prohibitive. I know there are, you know, obviously issues. And and so, 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 yeah. 
I think hedges are a possible useful intervention in quite a lot of urban contexts where we need cheap intervention that doesn't uh, take up a lot of space, which is obviously costly in urban areas. Yeah, and, and obviously space is a premium. I think, you know, when I um, think about certainly, say, like the front gardens, just let's just think about front gardens for a minute, which obviously we know that a lot of people have given over their front gardens to um, extra parking, for example. Um and something that I, you know, again, when I used to have to walk my stepson to school, you know, you see all these children that are at exhaust level height. You know, they're literally at the same height as cars spewing out all of their fumes. Now, when you walk, if you're on a busy road and you live on a road, obviously lots of people do. Um, I guess having that green screen, as it were, which is certainly at the height of a car, because exhaust is coming at that sort of level first before coming up? Is there is there something within that that you've looked at? Uh, it's not something that I have myself looked at. I mean, I do read the literature around it. And, you know, when you get into area of, of uh, atmospheric chemistry and, you know, the movement of currents, it, it does get quite complicated. And there are people better qualified than me to, you know, give you a lot of detail about how then the air currents move. And sometimes things can be made worse before they're made better. So I, I'm not going to go in there, but I would say that for most of the context that we have in the UK peri-urban context, uh, a, a good sort of healthy hedge, and currently what I'm looking at are actually mixed, beginning to look at are mixed hedges, uh, because, I mean, Hawthorne's like fantastic, and it's in the summer, it, you do get a lot of benefit from it. It's, it's a very physiologically active plant. It's an 80 plant. There's a lot of reasons why it's, it's, it's much loved in, in the British context, uh, but it's deciduous, so you lose that service in the winter. So I'm looking at, you know, what it can be meaningfully combined with so that you get a year-round um, service from a hedge that's also practical because I was giving, I was talking to my colleagues in RHS advisory and I was like, oh yeah, I'd like to mix these. And he was like, nah, want to, you know, pruning the requirements are too different and they wouldn't be growing well together. So, but that's something that I have a luxury, you know, working at the RHS, I have a luxury of being able to call on the colleagues who can sort of put me right and help me choose the, you know, combinations which are meaningful practically as well kind of exciting scientifically and hopefully our members will be benefiting in a wider you know gardening public will be benefiting from that you know really before too long we are putting all that information out literally as as we're well i think it's great you know chiana that you know that there is um science behind um this because obviously you know there are cultural trends um as to why we like to do things visually um people like to have certain plants or trees or shrubs within their gardens etc so i think it's really great that we can sort of um see the the functionality of plants um helping us um in so many different ways um i mean i just want to touch on i mean we touched on cloaking um uh walls for example um either with something like a, a climber that could go straight onto it i mean obviously there are green wall um installations that people can have as well isn't there um is that also um a good option if people like because in that way you get to choose a mixed species within there um how do green walls um fe feature in any of the research well, I mean, again, you know, there's a scientist of me who's kind of thinking how to carefully balance that. In terms of the service, surely it would provide you a service. This diversity of planting is good. The fact that you have a layer of substrate is also good because it gives you additional installation. But then it's important to think about the wider sustainability of the installation. Where does the plastic come from? How is it irrigated? 
because those would take a lot more additional inputs uh, compared to, as I say, uh, you know, ivy that we already mentioned, which you plant there and you leave it and, you know, give it an annual prune and that's it. Um, but I just actually wanted to mention something else, both with hedges and, and say, for example, ivy, there would be people who just, you know, really, it doesn't appeal to them. And I, I do appreciate that's very important just because something is functional. It doesn't mean people will uptake it. So it's very important that people can choose what they like and then sort of also be happy that there are additional benefits. But that's where this botanical variety that we have, you know, for ivy, you have you know, tens of cultivars that you can choose. So if you go to Wisley, I mean, actually only recently I've discovered a little garden where, you know, there, I think I've probably seen 15 cultivars of ivy and the difference in size and leaf shape and leaf color, you know, some are like little stars, some are like, you know, big hearts and variegated and green and shiny and dull. You know, there's so many cultivated variety that you can choose from that is great. And same goes for hedges. It doesn't mean, oh, it's a privet. I mean, I think even in a box standard garden center, you can buy probably four types of privet. You can buy, you know, variegated, you can buy green, you can buy smaller leaves, bigger leaves. So it's not about, oh, well, it's boring. It can be made interesting. Um, and you can be combining things to, to gain the, you know, visual appeal as well as have this functionality. So I don't think one excludes or precludes uh, another. No, absolutely. It'll be really interesting to sort of see the um, other um, species or, or plants that we can use when you when you get the results from your mixed hedging. So we'll, we should obviously have to be looking out for that. But, you know, in terms of like the green infrastructure, obviously, which is really important to you about how we keep greening up um, our cities. So, I mean, um, I know that there have been... Um, the propulsion of green roofs, um, whether that's using them on things like our garden sheds or bikes and bin stores. I mean, does that also help with green infrastructure and helping to put more green back into um, into into areas? Totally, totally, Ari. That, I mean, that is the case where it's, you know, I know it sounds now really cheesy when you say it, but it's, the, you know, every little helps. <laughs> I don't know whether we are allowed to use that, but, you know, really, the more, the better. So if it's a, a green roof and then a climber and then a bit of a hedge and then, you know, per, perennial border, it all really has this additive effect. Um and then, you know, the more of us do it, the bigger impact it will be because with, with urban greenery, that's really the key. It's the scale of, of benefit is proportional to the scale of implementation. So, you know, we could have the loveliest, uh, you know, green wall, which is super eye-catching. And I understand why maybe some commercial premises may want to have it as a kind of visual statement. But if that's the only green thing in the vicinity of the 100 meters, microclimatic impacts are going to be negligible. Mm, mm. And I guess I, I like the fact that you've just brought in that sort of um, the microclimate um, element to that because, you know, I have quite a small garden um, and, you know, it, things have grown up. I didn't realise, you know, 10 years ago when I first moved in, it was literally a lawn and a couple of skinny borders and I wasn't really a gardener at that point in time. I've blinked and 10 years, 12 years later, I've got a little microclimate. The trees, gosh, they grew up and some of the shrubs. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it, it's, it doesn't take long for us to be able to build these uh, microclimates. I mean, we certainly saw benefit for cooling um, during the summer of 2020 when it was really hot and we were clearly in our gardens. But I think 
what you've just said there in terms of creating microclimates by thinking about all of the sur- basically all of the surfaces, isn't it really? The, the, vert- the vertical surfaces, the horizontal surfaces, whether it's the ground level or a shed, that's what we need to be looking at. Yes. And again, like shameless plug for, you know, RHS advice, but, you know, we are aware that our members and, and gardeners more widely are pressed with some of those problems. Yes, they do need to park, but really there are ways to, you know, have your cake and eat it. And don't be despondent if you just, you know, if you can't have a mega tree in your front garden and a massive hedge, it doesn't mean that it should be then, oh, well, I'll pave it all over. There are kind of in between solutions that add up. And, and I think that's where hedges, because they are sort of linear and relatively, you know, can take relatively small area and climbers can really be quite a you know, saving grace in urban context. Mm, mm, no, exactly. They're very, they don't take up huge amounts of space. In in your work, um, Tiana, you're constantly researching how plants um, can help us. And I'm thinking, what can, what things can we be considering before we go off to the nursery to buy plants? Um, you know, what can we be looking at other than just how beautiful the flowers are at that time of year? How can we help? I would say uh, choosing plants which are longer lived is definitely something that I would go for. So perennial planting uh, rather than annuals wherever possible um, f- for a number of reasons, which perhaps I don't have to elaborate, but generally that, that longevity has positive carbon impacts and also if they're relatively low maintenance, then, then even better. So uh, perennial planting um at the moment, there is quite a lot of um, discussion around uh, evergreen planting and the benefits that evergreens. I, I think in terms of science, we're still not 100% sure. Um, so I think some a, a good mix of deciduous and perennials is likely to bring you a, a year-round benefits because um, these plants that drop their leaves are usually very active and can provide a really good service for you in the summer. But then what do you substitute uh, you know, what do you substitute them in the winter? Um, that's another thing. And then generally having a tree, I, I think that that's a consensus that's growing. Even if it's a small tree is, is really helpful on so many levels. Um, so I would say perenniality, have a tree, um, choose a, a good mix and just go really quite diverse. Um, and if possible, avoid um, areas which are very high, high maintenance, you know, like lawns and annuals which are dig out but on the other hand i don't want to say oh don't ever use annuals i, mm. I mean i'm as guilty as charged as i love <laughs> my i love my hanging basket exactly we all yeah and that's the thing we we, we appreciate that this is about the joy of gardening still you know uh, a lot of uh the the, the speakers that I've, I've spoken to you know there is a joy to be had and and i think that's important but equally it to me it, it comes down to balance you know, it's, there's a balance to be had, isn't there? If you're somebody that loves annuals, of course, great. In pots is brilliant. But it's, I guess, you're trying to say that make sure you've got some perennials in there as well. Perennials and woody plants and ideally a tree. And, you know, we, we would be hoping that in the next few weeks we are able to recommend a tree for every garden, irrespective of how small it is. And possibly even, you know, if you're on a balcony or somewhere that, um, you know, you can put a, a meaningful size tree to you know benefit you and, and also immediate environment oh that'd be i think that would be amazing so i'm sure people will definitely want to look out for that um there's other something else i wanted to talk to you about um with regards to sort of if you like 
plant structure um, so that we can just share that with um, any listeners because there are certain um, qualities of plants, certainly around their um, their leaf structure, that can also help with some of the issues we've spoken about um, the uh, air quality, the pollution, etc. So it's things like the um, the colour of the leaves, isn't it, and hairs and and things and hairs. Can can you ex- explain a bit more about that? Yeah, that, that is you know that's a, almost a bit of a scientific curiosity. So we know from our experiments and and uh, that you know we, we looked at what are the kind of underpinning traits that you want in your plants to give you better cooling or give you more rainfall sequestration or better trapping of pollutants. And the presence of these uh, rough uh, structures on the leaf, so, you know, roughnesses and ridges and veins and hairs, um, does help with quite a number of these things. So, you know, for example, particles get then lodged into a leaf and, you know, don't float about in the air. So you have, you know, as a consequence, kind of cleaner air around the plant. Um, and also in terms of the color, it, plants that have lighter color reflect, especially if you use them as a, as a roof, um, roof cover, so green roof cover, um, would reflect more energy and therefore keep the space underneath it cooler. Uh, but I wouldn't get too worried about it. So if you're, as you say, in a garden center, you're trying to choose and it can be, I suppose, overwhelming. And you think, oh my God, I have to think about color and I have to find something hairy. And, <laughs> And it's not about that. Really, the biggest impact comes from the extent of planting. Uh, And it comes from using these perennial plants and it comes from the plants that provide this year-round service. So I think that's the main driver. Try and find a plant that will last you a while, hopefully. Um, And that's why I'm sort of going around with this perenniality and try and fill every corner with something, even if some of those plants may be slightly less efficient or, you know, would be absorbing a bit more heat than reflecting. It's not the end of the world. It can be mitigated through the, you know, good mixing. So I would say that's probably more important than these quirky scientific things that do get us interesting papers and are good talking points. But in practice, you know, in terms of day-to-day gardening practices, isn't aren't something that should worry or kind of send our listeners into panic and thinking oh, oh I no to- we don't want we don't want panic we don't want panic out there we just want to kind of get some of get get some lovely facts which i mean you've been brilliant at sharing um yes how these functions of plants um really work which is what i you know which is just always it still fascinates me it's, it fascinates me how plants um just do so much um so much for us without us even realizing they're just silently getting on with it <laughs> and getting on with it and getting to do more than one thing at the time. So that's why I'm thinking it's important not to hang up about, oh, it's just this, there is a super plant. No, they're all, you know, in many ways, unless they're invasive or, you know, poisonous, they're all doing their little bit in some way. So I think that's the key to remember, not not to lose them and not to pave over if we can avoid it and, you know, stick some green wherever possible. Yeah, no, that's a really good a really good tip. Now I know we won't go into it in huge detail, but I just want to touch a little bit, a little bit on lawns. Um, you know, we just sort of you sort of scooted over it there. I I'll be honest, I took my lawn out um because I have a small garden and um in the end I decided because I kept well, probably mainly because I kept eating into it <laughs> to increase the borders. Um, but also um, I felt that I wanted to be able to maybe in time um, have bigger borders and also sort of interplant into a more permeable gravel area. Now, you know, 
lawns are the love of, of, of a lot of many English gardens. Um, but do they actually play a part in helping us with um, the inf- infrastructure in our cities, the greening of them? I mean, I haven't done huge amount of, well, I haven't done any specific research myself on loans, but I am reading, you know, it's part of my wider reading that I do in sort of keeping myself informed. Um, And I would say that they have a role to play if they're not overmanaged. You know, a loan is a better alternative than, God forbid, plastic loan. I mean, like you said, don't get me started. I mean, don't get me started on plastic loans. I'm going to explode. Seriously. (laughs) Seriously. Um, but, uh, you know, or paid over areas. So, you know, in, you know, if you're talking in that, uh, you know, s- spread of, of universes, then loans are absolute yes compared to those other alternatives I, I've, I've mooted. And then it's then also what you put in those, those loans, you know, they're now flowering loans. There are some interesting things that they could they could be to come and also if they're not over managed i mean there's been some excellent research a few years ago coming from australia where they looked at the irrigation of the lawns and actually that you can really keep it minimal you can you know so the thing we should forget is you know this endless desire to keep them you know perennially green let them die back they will come back you know so I think if we have them on those terms, because it can be convenient. I know when I had young children, it was convenient because, you know, my youngest was eating plants and I was worried of putting some plants in because I was worried about him poisoning himself. But, you know, lawn was practical and, and, you know, working then. Now I can get a bit more excited, you know, and start, you know, combining things. But, you know, it has a time and a place and I'd rather do that than have a, you know, concreted garden. So, so yeah, that's the kind of very long-winded way of saying I think they they can have a role still with what we understand, but if they're not overmanaged, yeah, yeah, no, not too much water, not too much fertilizer, just let them be. And and of course, like you say, we won't go into it because it will both explode. But the artificial lawns, we have to remember that the artificial lawns, above anything, above apart from above anything, they add more heat into the garden. Yeah. No, it's just, no, it's like, absolutely, I mean, I I don't even know how we got into a position of even needing to discuss, you know, or, you know, explain why plastic lawns are just a no, should be a no-go on so many levels. Tiana, I can feel another podcast coming up for that. (laughs) I can feel another podcast, my dear. So, I mean, you know, as we can both of it, I could keep talking about, you know, that this whole greening up our cities. I think it's fabulous that you're doing this work and providing um, us research and information to help us make better choices about our plants. So I guess my my question is, my final takeaway point that I, I want to ask you is, what one change should we all be making now to improve our cities? That's a very profound question, Arit, really. Um, and it's not easy for a scientist to answer when you say one, because it's it's never got never going to be one. But if I have to have to say one, then I would say reducing paving over and keeping the plants in because of all these multiple benefits that I have explained. So that's the change. So if you're tempted to go and uh, pave. Please try and look for alternative solutions to keep the greenery and also, you know, s- sort out your issue w- with planting. Or if you know, I can even sort of term it as a gra- you know glass half full. It's you know pull up a paper. 
if you've painted already, pull it up and try and put something green there. Yeah, no, that's 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 really sound advice. And I think that, uh, you know, there's even those little other interventions where, you know, if you have got some paving down, take out three or four pavers and just put a little bit of green back. So I, I, I think that's great advice. Oh, Tiana, it's been fabulous speaking to you. Thank you so much and bringing your scientific knowledge to the table. And, um, and we certainly don't think it's uh, doom and gloom. It's been brilliant understanding how plants can help us in our growing city lives, which is where, we're, which is what we, where we live. Thank you so much, Jared, for giving me the platform to explain things in, in real, proper scientific depth, which isn't very, you know, often that I get the chance to. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Oh, that's great. Great, great, great. Well, thank you so much. You take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to me, Ara Anderson, on the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. You can find out more about the themes we've covered today at gardenersworld.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it. Rate us in your podcast provider app. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify or Acast to never miss an episode. See you next time.